Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Ben Linders. Based in the city of Tilburg in the Netherlands, Ben is an independent consultant with experience in agile, lean, and continuous improvement practices. He's also a popular writer and speaker, and an editor for culture and methods at InfoQ. You can read more about Ben on his website at benlinders.com. You can follow him on Twitter at benlinders. And if in need of advice, consulting, or training, you can contact him at info at benlinders.com. Ben is the author and co-author of a number of LeanPub books, including What Drives Quality, a deep dive into software quality with practical solutions for delivering high-quality products, Getting Value Out of Agile Retrospectives, a toolbox of retrospective exercises, and most recently, the Agile Self-Assessment Game, which sets out a game Ben created that is now played by teams all over the world to help them think about how they collaborate with others and how they can proceed down an Agile path. In this interview, we're going to talk about Ben's background and career, professional interests, uh, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published uh, book author. So thank you, Ben, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and software. Well, that, that's a way back, actually. I first became interested in computers when I was uh, studying in high school and I uh, I actually uh, created my own computer. At that time, I didn't have much money, so I just bought a board, I bought all the components, and I created my own uh, Apple II derivate, having a first computer and just having a way to, to play around with it and playing some games and doing some other stuff on that. I found it very interesting, and I actually also started to look at, uh, at the BIOS, which was in there, and have some idea on how computers were built up and how the software was functioning. And I think that was my first part where I got interested into computer technology, not that much into to software, but much more in how computers were working and what they could do and the stuff that you could do with them. Uh, did your did your parents help you out in this? I mean, who, who, who got you into this? How did you find out about how to build an Apple II computer? Uh, I got connected with some of the, the networks who were actually doing these computers. There was a group of people in, in Eindhoven who were also connected to Philips and who had developed their own board and had some instructions how to do that. Uh, so that, that's the space where I got started. Not that much my parents. They, they looked a bit like, okay, what is computers and why the hell are you doing this? <laughs> they, weren't really that, they weren't really that familiar with, with that kind of stuff. But, well, if they, they saw I was happy doing that, then that, that was okay for them. And, but, uh, no, it was more being in the area, I think, and then seeing this, this kind of stuff developing around. I was also studying in Eindhoven, so I was also connected to that city. And, and seeing this happening uh, made me start doing this. And did you study computer science in university? Uh, I studied electronics, and I graduated on computer technology in the electronic area, which was mostly hardware-related. There was some part in there on software, but most of the stuff was hardware at that time. One of the questions I like to ask people um, who are in tech uh, on this on this podcast is, um, if you were starting out again now and you could give yourself advice, would you advise yourself, if you were looking for a career in, in software, um, to would you advise yourself to go to university and do a formal degree? Or would you advise yourself to do something else? No, I think uh, I learned a lot at, at university. I, I learned, you, you learn a way of thinking, you learn a way of approaching problems and looking for solutions to solve those problems. And I learned some stuff already at university initially when I was doing my, my electronic study. But I also did some social studies later on. So I studied psychology, sociology, 
to, to look at more the, the soft side of software development. That was also when I was doing software development already and got interested into that. So, And I think it's also good to do to do multiple studies. So not, not just focus on one tech study, but try to combine it with another study because it gives you a different way of thinking, looking at problems. Um, from what I gather online, looking at your uh, LinkedIn profile, um, I figured out that you've spent you, you spent a, a great deal of your uh, early career working for giant corporations like Philips and Ericsson. Um, but like many people who show up on LeanPub writing books, you eventually made the decision to switch to independent consulting. And I wanted to ask you what led you to make that leap. Yeah, I think the, the, the main reason to do this was that uh, I wanted to have uh, a little bit more challenging work at that time. At, at that time, I was working for Ericsson. And basically, every year there was new stuff coming up, new ideas I could try out in the company. Agile was actually one of them, but I was doing a lot of stuff on, on Agile already before Agile really became popular. Uh, I started doing Agile retrospectives in 2001 after seeing Norm Kurt at, at the conference talking about this. So I was doing a lot of this stuff already earlier. And every year working with Ericsson, I more or less set myself some targets to explore some new areas and try out some new stuff. And I was getting to a point where there wasn't really anything new ongoing anymore in Ericsson that would give me that opportunity. So I started thinking about, okay, what I'm, what I'm going to do right now. And uh, I had a lot of freedom already within Ericsson, working with multiple projects and also working in the operational development departments. So I, I was used to basically working on my own, making agreements with, with the projects that I was working with, making agreements with the managers that I was working with. And that was something that, that felt good. So my decision was I either wanted to go for another big company and do a kind of similar job, but then in a different technology area and to, to further develop myself or to become an independent consultant. And basically the question was, whatever would come up first, that would be the one to do. And the other company didn't come up uh, except for a big, uh, bigger assignment for a year and a half at the police department, which was also very interesting. But not not finding that other company, not finding those other jobs, I decided, okay, then I'm going to be an independent because I, I want to do this work. I want to have interesting and challenging work to do. Um, I also saw from your profile that you've worked extensively with government as well as with these giant companies in the private sector. Um, and I wanted to ask you, with, with respect to software development, how are the two different, the private sector and the government? And I know this is only going to be this is going to be from your perspective and your particular experience. But what 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 would you say the difference is? I think one of the major differences that I've seen, uh, certainly the companies that I worked with, was the the risk averseness of of the governmental areas, which were much much less focused on not taking on too much new things and more or less resistant to change. So they wanted, they didn't want to change too much. There that, that was things that really made them feel uncomfortable in there. And the other major difference I saw was that uh, actually at the governmental uh, agencies that I work with, a lot of people working there were coming from consultants, consultancy companies. And also for them, they, they wanted to maintain the, the status quo. They wanted to maintain the situation that they were in, do the work that they were doing for those governmental bodies. And I think it's a kind of catch-22. Uh, it was more safe for them 
to, to not to change too much and to stick to the contracts that they had and keep on doing the work and not become too innovative. While at the other end, they wanted to try some new stuff. And I think that also felt safe for the governmental bodies. And I think that was really inhibiting a lot of the innovation that could have done in those organizations, basically being resistant to, to change and being resistant to changing the system in there and having benefit from sticking to the system. And um, was there anything you could do working for them to, to, to prod them along or was, was it just a, a hopeless scenario? Well, I think that there was some stuff that I could do and some stuff that I actually did. I found out very quickly uh, jumping in with the, the change approach that I was doing at, at uh, the governmental body that I was working with that I needed a different approach. They initially asked me for a project proposal and writing that I actually found out that to, it didn't really make much sense to call it a project proposal because basically I didn't have any budget to do anything. I didn't have any people on my project. It was solely me trying to influence the situation at that company, working together with a couple of the departments I was involved with. So then I decided to take a different approach in there. Instead of making an extensive project proposal, I just made a kind of backlog of the things that I thought that would make sense for them to start working on. And I used a kind of campaign approach where I said, okay, we're going to be working on these changes and I don't want to do too many of them at the same time. So we're just going to take two or three, maximum four changes at a time that we're going to be doing in this organization, focusing upon that. The biggest benefit I actually saw was because I, I wasn't a project and I wasn't detached to any of the major improvement programs that they were running in the organization. I was able to continue the stuff that I was doing because all of those programs, they were either stopped after three or four months when they had to change their strategy and they had to go back to the desk, write a new project proposal, get an agreement on that, to start working on that. Where I said, well, okay, I'm, I'm not attached to one of those programs and I'm just doing stuff in the organization right now, which I think made sense and I got the people involved in there. So I managed to continue some of the changes that I was doing in there. Uh, going actually up to the, the CEO level in, in the organization or looking on what quality really meant in that organization. Um, one thing that uh, I found you've written about is using positive psychology approaches. And I was wondering if you could, and you, you mentioned your, your education in areas outside electronics and hardware and computers. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what positive psychology approaches are and where they come from. I have to be to say I'm, I'm not sure where they exactly come from. I got actually triggered by the, the positive approaches in there by uh, one of the managers I was working with at Ericsson. Uh, they were doing regular meetings with uh, the employees to focus on uh, developing their skills and, and finding out the things that they can do in their job to, to do their work better. And one of the managers actually called me in one day and said, I, I don't want to hear any more stories about things that are going wrong. I want to hear stories about things that are going right. And I want to hear stories about stuff that is going well right now. Because I'd like the people in my group to focus on improving their strong points, improving the strengths that they have in their organization. And they use those skills to, to solve the problems at hand. That was a different approach that he's been reading about that. And, and initially... It, it, it felt a kind of awkward to me, coming from a background for quality management, being focused on issues, being focused on problems and trying to solve those. So it felt a bit strange to me, like, okay, I'm going to ignore stuff that is going wrong and I'm only going to focus on stuff that's going right. But there was one 
reason that really made, made sense to me where we said, if you focus on improving things that are going wrong, you're going to be medium level top. You're not going to get to the highest level in your organization. You're not going to get to your highest level of performance. But if you start focusing on your strengths, on the stuff that you are good at already, and you start improving that, that's where you really have the ability to go to, to really high performance in your organization. And I'd like the people in my department to really be high performers in, in the things that they are doing in there. And then, okay, there, there will be stuff, there will be things which will go wrong, there will be problems. But most of the time, there will be other people who can deal with those kind of situations who are better in the stuff that you're not good at. So if you start dividing the work up differently, work together as a team, and have everybody focus on the strengths and work together, there will always be somebody who can do the stuff that you're not good at. And then you can help each other to get to a higher level. So that's basically where this, this started. I started doing some reading on that. Uh, I found out about some of the techniques like uh, appreciative inquiry, uh, where you would use the interviews to really find the strange stuff and, and use that. And uh, positive deviance, like, okay, let's look for people who really stand out in, in the area and try to find out what's making the difference in there and using that kind of stuff to improve organization. I'm still focusing a lot of that. Oh, and so that's what positive deviance is. That's um, somewhat someone who stands out. It basically is somebody who stands out in, in, in the area and then you're going to dive into to find out, okay, what is it that really makes a difference? What is it that makes these people stand out? And there's something in there that we can also use and that we can further develop in the organization or the other people can pick up. What, what is it? What is the thing that is making the difference in there? That's the kind of stuff you're looking at. So you could compare it to a kind of, of root cause analysis, but then not on a problem, but on the strengths which are there. Diving deeper until you really know the root cause of why somebody is being a better performer in some area. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I know this this goes this has a long history, uh, but is a CMM or the capability maturity model. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about what that is and how it's come up in your work with organizations. It basically came up, uh, again, in, in the larger organization I was working with. I think initially it came up when I was working at Philips, where they were looking at ways to uh, improve their uh, way of working, which basically meant for them improving their processes. And the CMM at that time and the work from, from Watts Humphrey was really focusing on what is what is your way of work, what is your process, and what can you do in there to reflect on that process and to find ways to improve. That was something that really, really appealed to me. And and uh, I actually met Watts Humphreys later on and I had to talk with him and really understanding how this stuff is working really, really confirmed that he was on the right track with that. So the CMM at that time was... There was actually two things. Initially, it was a kind of maturity model that organizations were using to to be assessed and to see how well they were performing in those areas and then looking for ways to improve. And later on, it became more and more focused on a kind of capabilities model. And that was actually also what the CMMI, the successor of CMM was promoting, uh, being focused on what are, the again, the capabilities that you have in your organization, the capabilities that people have, and using those capabilities to do a better job. Um, you wrote in a presentation on CMM that 
agile assumes a mature workforce. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what that means. What, why, why, what is a mature workforce and why is that assumed in an agile process? Yeah, well, the, actually, this is still one of the things that, that surprises me. When, when I initially saw the stuff about agile, then I found it a very, very disciplined approach to software development work. And if, if a team would really want to work in an agile way, they would need quite, quite some skills both being the technical skills to do the work, but also the communication skills, the soft skills to work together as a team, to communicate, the skills to make their work transparent, to see how they were doing, the skills to reflect and, and to learn from the stuff that they were doing. So if you would like to work in an agile way, for me that meant that, that you would need quite some some mature organization to be able to do this. And uh, I think one of the statements that I initially made with people when we were discussing Agile was that I only expected about 10% or maybe 20% of the organizations would be capable of really working in an Agile way mm. and really using this kind of approach because it takes quite it takes quite some discipline to do this, to, to really make this work. It, it takes a culture where people uh, can be open and honest to each other. And that's not something that, that's a given in, in most of the organizations right now, certainly not if you're at a lower majority. So that was my initial expectation, and I think I made this statement in, in 2001, 2002, when Agile was just actually just, just starting off and having the Agile manifesto in there. And looking back, I think this, this is still the case. I think if you look at the majority of the organizations that are trying Agile right now, they are not getting the benefits that you really want to get out of Agile. They, they don't have the right culture in their organization. To, to really benefit from using Agile practice in there, then you would actually question whether they, they should really go this way. And what is it that they're missing? Is it giving workers kind of independence? Uh, is it giving them that maturity? It is giving them that maturity, but usually that that's a lot of this independence has to do with the organizational structure, with the system, with things like the, the rewarding system, which is there in the organization. What are the expectations from, from the managers in the organization? Hmm. So it's, it's that kind, kind of stuff. It's the whole culture surrounding the teams that it's not making, giving them the, the possibility to really be, be self-organized, to really self-organize their work, to reflect on the work, to take the decisions. Usually there's also a lack of information. In a lot of organizations, uh, information is still something that is considered to be power. And if teams don't get the right information, if they don't know what the organization is heading for, then they can't take the right decisions. So that's also something that is strongly related, again, to the culture and the way that the organization is set up. Uh, you mentioned your experience going back to the beginning of Agile. And I wanted to ask you, um, you, know, you were talking about 2001, and I wanted to ask you, um, I, I know it's an overly broad question perhaps, but how have things changed, for example, like when you, when you engage with a company, are people more familiar with, I mean, certainly I, I assume they're more familiar with Agile than they would have been when it was new, uh, but have things changed? Is, is it easier to get into sort of like the executive level to um, initiate changes along Agile or continuous improvement lines? Yeah, I think it, it has changed. Uh, a lot of the executives now are, are getting familiar with Agile, though often getting familiar with Agile means that the They've seen things like like Scrum, and they think that Scrum is the only way that Agile can be done in an organization. 
but there's, there's more knowledge about Agile. I think also the term Agile and the idea why this term was created as being something about agility, making your organization more agile. I think that's something that, that appeals to organizations. Getting to a level of business agility, this is still a challenge in a lot of organizations. They, they look at Agile as something, as uh, the way that their IT department should be working. Hmm. But it's not something that they really see in, in business agility. And, and that's actually where I think still the, the biggest benefits are there if you look at Agile. It's not about the IT, it's about IT, product development, business development, working together to get real benefits. Um, in the description of your book, What Drives Quality, you mentioned that the book, uh, quote, views software, views software quality from an engineering, management, and social perspective, uh, end quote. And I wanted to ask you about that last part. What, what does it mean to view software quality from a social perspective? Uh, I think from a social perspective, you're again looking at, at the teamwork. You're looking at creating a product together and involving the right people in your organization if you're looking at quality. Quality is not just uh, the, the technical part of your software. Quality is also how your users are perceiving your product, what's important for them. And uh, again, this takes social skills to really understand your customers, to really understand your clients and to understand what, what they do with the system, how they use it, and what their expectations are. And there can be situations actually that uh, you, you can go low on technical quality. I, I recall one situation where we were discussing a new feature and we, we found out that we, we didn't know how to do this. This was something that was really new, it was very complicated, and we didn't know how to do this. And we knew that we had a big chance that the first versions of the feature wouldn't be working properly. And then actually our product manager said, don't worry about that because I got a couple of customers who are going to try out this stuff. And they're going to give you feedback very quickly. So it's much more important right now that you're able to respond to this feedback. And if any problems pop up to solve them, then trying to make the right product the first time because you're not going to be able to do it anyway. So then quality was much more in responding to the feedback and being able to solve problems then it wasn't trying the right product from start because that, 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 was, that wasn't a feasible goal anyway. We shouldn't strive for that. Um, one of your other books uh, you co-authored with Luis Gonzalez. Um, the book is called Getting Value Out of Agile Retrospectives. Um, I found a video on YouTube where you and Luis talk about your experience with remote collaboration on the book at length, so I'll put a link to that in the transcription to this interview. Uh, but I wanted to ask you briefly here, could you talk a little bit about the approach you and, and Luis uh, developed to remotely co-authoring a book? Well, the approach that we developed was that we initially uh, had a couple of uh, Skype calls to see, okay, what's the kind of stuff that we would like to have in the book? And we, we, we started from the idea already, which we actually started on, on the discussion on one of Louis' blogs, that we wanted to have a book with retrospective exercises. There were a couple of books out on retrospective. There's, there's the Agile Retrospective book from Mr. Derby and Diana Large, which gives a lot of solid foundation from how to do retrospective, all the stuff is in there. Actually, there are also a lot of exercises in there. And to my surprise, I didn't even know that. Because there's so much good stuff up front in, in the book that you usually don't get to the exercises. All the stuff which is there before the exercise is so valid already that people are really working on that and using that in their retrospective before they really get to the exercises. We wanted to create an exercise book. And having said that, 
we started collecting material from, from our blogs and we quickly decided on using Leanpub as a, as a platform to do this because it was easy for us just to pull in our blog post into Leanpub and then formatting them into chapters and then see, okay, what, what's the kind of stuff that we have right now in the book? What's missing in there? Uh, we found out that we missed a couple of topics, and actually we took the same approach that uh, I've also seen Jürgen Eppelow doing, is that if you want to have some stuff in your book, start blogging about it, and then reuse your blog into the book to turn it into a chapter. So the parts that were missing, we were writing a blog post on that, posted it on our website, got some feedback, further refined that one, and then incorporated it into the book. Then again, we also found out that having a couple of blog posts together and putting them into the right order and doing some editing uh, doesn't make it a book. We've done some major rework on the blog post to really get it into the book format, to really get it into a similar format everywhere. Uh, it's a different writing style when you're blogging or when you're writing a book. So we did some quite some work on that to get it into the format and to get it into the right style that we want to have it to the book. But using Leapup as a writing platform, uh, using occasionally a Skype call if you want to check some stuff, and for the rest of stuff, it was mostly emails just checking on what we were working on and, and coordinating our work. That was our way of working together. By the way, we did it fully remotely. We, we never met in person when we were writing the book. Huh, that's really interesting. Yeah, we, we never got a chance to meet each other, and then the book got published, and then I think it was... Three months later, that Lewis was in Amsterdam for a workshop over there, and then he called me a couple of days before, like, okay, I'm going to be in Amsterdam. Okay, so let's meet for dinner. So that was the first time that we actually met in person. The book was out already for three months. That's a great story, um, uh, and, and congratulations on the success of that book. Um, I have a question or two about that uh, that I'll be asking in a few minutes. Um, but first I wanted to ask you about your latest book, uh, that you wrote yourself, um, the agile self-assessment game. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, uh, what that game is. I mean, I know it can be played a number of different ways, but what, what is agile self-assessment and how, how would teams use your book to, to undertake a self-assessment? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the agile self-assessment game, I called it a game which is more tied to the playing format than it is to, to, really being a game itself. It is, it is a set of cards, which you can use either as coaching cards, as self-assessment cards, or in different playing formats to get people to discuss on how they are doing right now as an agile team, or even if you look at an organization level or department level, how well are they performing right now? And the idea from agile self-assessment actually goes back to, to the way that I used to see my model to do assessments. Well, initially, uh, the CMM was meant as a model where assessors would come into an organization and see how well they were doing. With the CMMI, they started introducing different assessment formats because they also wanted to provide organizations with the means to do a kind of self-assessment before they went into a formal assessment. And I further explored this and used this as really together with teams and uh, with projects as a means to, to help them to really self-assess their performance. And instead of being an assessor, I was much more being there as, as a coach, helping them on this assessment process, helping them to self-reflect. The main reason for that is that I believe that if you help people, if you coach them to self-reflect and they see how well 
they are doing, but they also see where the areas are where they want to improve. You're going to get much more energy out of the team to, to work on the things that they will find out for themselves instead of an excel, external assessor auditor coming in and telling them, okay, that's the stuff you're doing wrong. And that's the things you need to work upon. You want people to find out for themselves to see, okay, well, what's the thing that we would need to improve? So the kind of self-assessments already started with using the CMI and using it as a capability model to, to help them to improve. And then with Agile, there was a new technology terminology coming in that was much more focused on team being self-organizing. And this, this fits very well with the idea of doing the self-assessments in there. And there was also the terminology of the new methods that became popular, Scrum being one of them, uh, Kanban being another one, and DevOps being another one for them. And that's where I developed specific cards for those practices, using the terminology and using the, the frameworks as a reference, but still focused on making something that teams can use themselves to improve. I mentioned that um, getting value out of Agile retrospectives was a pretty big hit, um, and I believe it's been translated into about 13 languages. Um, and I wanted to ask you, uh, for the benefit of any self-published authors listening, how did you, how did you and Luis uh, pull it off? How 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 did you uh, get that book to be so such a, such a hit? Yeah, well, I, I I think it's the the practical format of the book that made it a hit. Is the exercises which are in there, which people wanted to do in their retrospectives, and and that, there's a lot of exercises available on on the internet. There's, Several websites for exercises are published a uh, long, long time. This is not something new, but the way that we collected them in the book made it into something that was very, very handy for agile coaches and scrum masters to take along and to pull out exercises and to use them. So I think it's partly the packaging, the reformatting. It's also a couple of new exercises that we brought in there that, that made it easier for people to pick up stuff using this, this book that we wrote in there. And then I, I, I got requests from people who said, okay, we've, we've read the book and we played around with the exercises, but we would like to have them available in our local language for the teams over here in our countries. So can, can we translate the book? And actually all of these translations have been done by volunteer teams. Hmm. Even, even the Dutch translation. I didn't translate the Dutch version, although I'm, I'm Dutch. I was one of the reviewers. Right. That, that that was something I could do for the Dutch version, not for the Japanese one. <laughs> but for the Dutch version, I could review it. But just as any other language, it was people coming up and said, okay, we're interested in your book. We want to learn more about the topic. And one of the ways to learn about this topic is to translate the book, translate the chapters and use those exercises in there. What, what well, we did actually, and, and what I mostly did with the teams that I work with, is as I said, if you want to translate the book, I'm there to, to help you. I'm there to explain the exercise, but I'm also there to, to give you some kind of coaching. So if you want to try out these exercises with your team, if you want to find out how this stuff is really working, let me know. Let me know the question that you have. Let me know the issue that you are facing, and I will help you to apply this stuff in your organization. So it was a kind of two-way learning for them. Also, for a lot of people, it was really fun, fun to do this. I found it fun to, to translate the book, to work together on the chapters, and to, to learn more about this stuff. And actually, one of the teams that did the translation of our checkbook, uh, they're still together as a team, uh, being based in different cities. And they picked up the Scrum Guide to translate it. They picked up some other stuff. They also 
translated my game. They found out that the game was there and said, hey, we're still together as a translation team. Can we also translate your game? So they're having fun on being together as a kind of translation team, picking up stuff which is there, uh, learning about the new things and then translating it into their, their Czech language and making it available for the people. Um, you've also made uh, some print versions of your books uh, that are available for sale on Amazon, and all, also for the benefit of, of any self-published authors listening. I was wondering if you could talk. Wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your process was for making print versions of your book available. What, what was that like? Well, what a, what a bit of a challenge. Uh, again, your first assumption is when you have the, the book in ebook format and seeing all the, the self-publishing platforms in there. Uh, your assumption is that it shouldn't be so difficult to get it out as a printed version. But there are still some, some minor differences in there. One of them, of course, being if you have a printed version, you also have a back cover, so you need to do some work on that. <clears throat> uh, also, the different tools which are there. I used Create Space for the first book to publish it. I used uh, KDP for the second one to find out that KDB doesn't support autocopies. I I actually knew that from the start, but I still wanted to have a copy of of the book for myself. So uh, I found a little trick around that, but that turned out to also be a challenge to do it that way. Uh, Getting your stuff into the platform, getting it right, uh, it usually takes you a couple of iterations before you get it out. What I also found out is that the difference in... Uh, if people want to have an ebook version of your book or if they want to have a printed edition. Uh, the printed edition of the, the Dutch version is, is very popular. Actually, much more copies out there of the printed edition than from the ebook. Where for the English version and most of the other languages, it's, it's the other way around. Most of the copies are ebooks. So, for some reason, people in Netherlands prefer to have a paper copy book instead of an ebook. Where well, most of the platforms where I sell the book, both of them are available. If you go on Amazon, if you go on bold.com in the Netherlands, or management book, they sell both versions. And if you go to the book, you can see both versions next to each other. But then most of the people still prepare to have a paper copy of that. So I'm, I'm thinking for our next uh, paper copy edition to also publish the Spanish book, having the assumption that there's probably a market out there uh, in the world. A lot of people uh, speaking Spanish, having Spanish as a native language and who would be interested to have a paper copy version of that book. So that's the next one which is lined up to go out as a paper copy. Thanks. For and I'm also planning to do a paper copy from, uh, from my second book, What Drives Quality. Thanks very much for the details. It's always nice to hear from people in the, in the trenches. Um, uh, you know, dealing with KD, KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing, and, and, and things like that. Um, it can always, it's, it seems like there's always a little bit of, there's some, everybody's got their own little tricks they need to figure out when they're, when they're going through that process. Uh, and it does, it does seem, at least in, in my sort of experience, to be a little bit random about where print takes precedence over, over ebook versions and things like that. Um, my last question that I always like to ask is, um, if uh, there, if you, if there was one thing we could build for you on LeanPub, or if there was one problem we could fix for you, uh, and you could snap your fingers and have us do it, what would you ask us to do? Well, that's a good question because uh, I'm, I'm actually very happy with with LeanPub. Uh, I think the the major issue that I had with LeanPub 
was when we were working together with the translation teams, hmm. uh, having multiple people working on the book, multiple being more than two, but with two or three people it's still quite easy to synchronize. But if you have, like we, we had five, six people on most of the books that were being translated, who we were also dispersed around the world. Uh, we had quite some problems where people would change the book settings between uh, writing in Dropbox or writing on the Libra platform. Ah. That, that, that gives you synchronizing problems in there. Yeah. And uh, what I basically did with uh, the, the writing teams is just to give them full access. So I actually made everybody in the translation team into an author, giving them full access to do everything in Leapup. And you might want to have a way to, to limit that, like giving them access to most of the stuff in there, but for some of the settings, like the ones which are really crucial, like the, the writing mode, are you going to be writing in a robot, are you going to be writing on the Leapup platform, to limit that one to only have some kind of super author or owner of the book who's able to change that one, just prevent people from going into the, the wrong direction in there. I think that's, that's one of the things that I, that I can think of, one of the things that... that was a little bit challenging. Yeah, thank, but, thanks very much for that feedback. Um, actually, I was having a discussion just on uh, just a couple of days ago with a colleague about permissions, um, and in in a way, I'm kind of surprised that it hasn't come up more. Um, but when you know, when when you sort of let when you make someone a co-author on a Lean Pub book, they can, as, as as you're saying, they can change the writing mode from Dropbox to GitHub to in the browser, uh, and it is a little bit surprising that people don't get up to more more hijinks. Um, than they do, uh, mm -hmm. because uh, be, I mean, you know, once you're in, you have uh, there. There are some things around royalties and stuff like that where it's a little bit more constrained, and you have to contact us and things like that. But people really do have a great deal of of freedom once they're in. Um, and yeah, so thanks very much for mentioning that, particularly around the area of of translations, um, where it might be uh, more appropriate to have kind of limited permissions for people with different types of status. When they're working yeah. on a book, yeah. But I think only where it really makes makes sense to limit it, like indeed the writing mode, because that's it gets quite tricky and people get get lose synchronization when you change that kind of stuff. Okay. But most of the other stuff, I prefer to have it as, as give people maximum access in there and just trust the team. Okay, well, thanks, thanks very much for that. That's the the, the best uh, feedback is the most specific feedback, and that was very specific, uh, and really and really good actually. Um, so, uh, well, thank you, Ben, uh, for taking the time out of your your evening uh, over in the Netherlands uh, to uh, talk to talk to me and to be on the podcast. And thank you very much for being a Lean Pub author. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. Thanks.